0: Welcome back to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone Baptist Church, and today we are in week 34 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today I'm going to be talking to you about questions 92 through 95, and this week we are going to be answering the question, what is the law of God? And this question flows out of what we looked at last week in question ninety-one. Now, last week we were uh, looking at this new branch of the Heidelberg Catechism known as the gratitude branch. It's that section that deals with uh, how we respond in gratitude to the grace that God has shown us through Christ. And one of the things that uh, that we looked at last week was how uh, we, as believers in Christ, seek to honor God through faithfulness and through obedience. Uh, And the language that was used is that we do good works in response to God's grace. And question number 91 last week asked the question, well, how do we determine what is good? What, What do we do that is good? And here's the answer. To do what is good, we do only that which arises out of true faith and conforms to God's law and is done for His glory, and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. So... Our good works don't precede faith. They flow out of true faith uh, and they conform to God's law and they are done for God's glory. They're not based on established human traditions or even what humanity may believe is right. So I said this last week, the good that we do as faithful Christians, it's not based on our own ideas, about what is good, or even established cultural traditions. The good that we are called to walk in by God has been outlined for us in God's Word. More specifically, it has been outlined for us in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai after he delivered them from um, Egypt and from slavery there They form the basis. These ten words, these ten commandments form the basis of our understanding of all biblical moral law. But it might seem a bit odd that Heidelberg brings up the law in the section that expresses our gratitude. And I hope that I've explained that a little bit, but the way that many of us have been taught the law of God, it might seem more accurate to put the ten commandments in the guilt section of the catechism. And, and here's why I think that it, it falls in the right place. It falls in the gratitude section. Chronology becomes very, very important here. Now, if you'll remember um, all the way back to when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were in bondage, you'll remember that, that Yahweh didn't give them the Ten Commandments. He didn't give them his law before he saved them from from Egypt. He didn't come to them and and give them all of these laws and say, okay, if you keep all this stuff, then I'll come back in a couple years and then I'll save you. No, the reality is that he gave it to them after he had saved them from Egypt. When he came and he addressed the fact that they were in bondage, and he, he began to interact with Pharaoh through Moses, he called Israel his firstborn son. He talked about his loving relationship for them. He talked about the fact that he was going to fight for them, and he actually did that, and he redeemed them. He came in. He saved them from Egypt. He saved them by passing over them because of the blood of the lamb, which is significant, and then he led them out of bondage, and he led them toward the promised land, and in the process of doing that, that's when he gave them the law, right? So the law didn't function in order to make them the people of God. They were already the people of God and now the law was given in order to guide them as the people of God. You see, we as Christians, as believers in Christ, we become the children of God when we're born again and when we receive Christ by faith. We're saved from our bondage when the blood of the Lamb covers our sin. And now, as newly freed children of God, we need the law, we need God's Word to guide us in this world so that we can obey our Father and serve Him with our lives. So the law wasn't given in order to make us the people of God. It was given in order to guide us as the people of God. And therefore, to address the Ten Commandments in the gratitude section makes perfect sense. We've already received His grace, and we're walking in His grace. But we're walking in such a way that we want to do good, and we want to please our Heavenly Father. And so the Ten Commandments are incredibly important to us. But let's go back to the Heidelberg Uh, catechism questions for this week. We're going to start with question 92. What is the law of God? And the answer is this, Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Uh, Verse 4, second commandment, you shall not make for yourself A carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The third commandment. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, as we'll see in a few minutes, that that summarizes, that, that finalizes the first table of the law, those laws which are aimed at the vertical relationship we have with God. But it continues. This is the second table of the law, number 12. This is the fifth commandment honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that your the, the Lord your God is giving you. The sixth, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, you can find um, these ten commandments in several different parts of your uh, in, within your Bible. You can find them, um, like I mentioned, and like I just read for you here. Um, this comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter twenty. Uh, you can, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter twenty, Deuteronomy chapter five. You can see these things there, um, and these are the ten commandments. This is a summary of the law of God that was given to the people of God. Uh, And these Ten Commandments, literally these Ten Words, uh, are central to biblical morality in the Old and in the New Testaments. They are an important piece to the whole story of Scripture. They matter because they give us a specific understanding of what God requires of those in relationship to Him. And these commandments teach us a lot, not only about God, but also a lot about ourselves as well. However, these 10 commandments are not the only laws that God had given to his people. The biblical authors use the term law to refer to several different things. For instance, sometimes the biblical authors will use the phrase, the law of Moses. You see that in the New Testament quite a bit. And, And the law of Moses is used in reference sometimes to all of the writings of Moses, like the first five books of the Old Testament. When when some of the Pharisees or some of the scribes or even Jesus refers to the law of Moses, often he's referring to that whole body of Moses' writings. But more specifically, the law of Moses is referring to the law of God that was given through Moses. And this is a direct reference to the Ten Commandments. And theologians refer to the Ten Commandments as the moral law, and we can understand it that way also. This this moral law, these Ten Commandments, represent a basic understanding of what is right and what is wrong uh, as God has revealed. But God also gave other laws, right? So God gave laws that govern Israel as a nation, very specific laws that tell them how they are supposed to live, uh, how they are to establish justice, how they are to establish fair trade, how they are to relate to other nations, and we understand this to be the judicial law. God also gave a law to Israel we call the ceremonial law, and the ceremonial law governed the sacrifices and the rituals of Israel's worship that took place inside the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so when we think about the law of God from a big picture perspective, it it can be helpful to understand that God gave us a ceremonial law, I'm sorry, He gave Israel a ceremonial law, He gave Israel a judicial law, and He gave Israel a moral law. But when it comes to our understanding of basic Christian morality, the Ten Commandments are what we focus upon. But why? Here's a question. Why do we as Christians still concern ourselves with the Ten Commandments? I mean, didn't Jesus fulfill the Ten Commandments, the law of God, on our behalf? Well, yes, he did. But within the Reformed tradition, we think of the law as functioning in three ways. First, the law has a civil function within society in that it serves to limit and restrain evil, right? I mean, we we want our culture and our society to be governed by the the command that you shall not murder. And so the law of God, the moral law of God functions not just within our lives, but it functions within society. It limits the, the, the pervasiveness of sin and evil. Second, the second use of the law is that the law has an evangelical function in that it helps us to see our sin and it drives us to Christ. I mentioned earlier about how the law teaches us a lot about God, but it teaches us about ourselves as well. And one of the things that the law teaches us about ourselves is that we can't keep it. We, we can't stop bearing false witness. We can't stop coveting our neighbor's things. We we struggle to honor our father and mother. We struggle to keep uh, the laws of God. We, we struggle to not take the name of the Lord in vain. We, we struggle to uh, worship God only. I mean, all of these things, the law teaches us this. And so that's the second use of the law. It has this evangelical function in that it shows us that we are sinners and we can't keep the law on our own. And then third, the law functions to guide us as believers to know the will of God and to live a faithful Christian life. So when we think about the law of God from a big picture perspective, we think about the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. When we think about the function of the law, we tend to think about it in those three ways. It it functions within society. It functions in an evangelical way to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. And then as believers, it functions to guide us to know the will of God and to live in relationship to God. So you could say it this way. Yes, Jesus did come to fulfill the law on our behalf, but that doesn't mean that the law no longer matters to us. In fact, Jesus himself taught us that the Law does still matter. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, Jesus wants us to understand that the moral law of God is a permanent fixture because it reflects the unchanging nature of God, and it is the foundation for how believers should live and relate to God. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus, which includes his perfect keeping of the law. But as we serve God in this life, the moral law guides us to know what is good. Okay, so that's a big answer to question 92, and there's a lot that we need to consider in 92, uh, and especially in its answer. But let's look at question 93. How are the commandments divided? And the answer is this, into two tables. The first four commandments teaching us what our relationship to God should be. And the second has six commandments teaching us what we owe to our neighbor. Now, this is pretty straightforward. It's probably not really all that new to many of you. Um, The commandments on one side, the first four, reflect the vertical relationship to God, while the commandments on the other side of the table Uh, The the other six reflect the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. And I believe that this division of the law into relating to God and relating to man is supported and even summarized by Jesus when a Pharisee answered him this question. In Matthew 22, this Pharisee came. he's He's a lawyer, so he's a legal scholar, but he's a friend of the Pharisees. He came and he said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right. So that's a summary of that first table of the law. And then this is the great, uh, this is the great and first commandment. Jesus says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there you go. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. There's a there's a table of the law relating to God, a table of the law relate, relating to our neighbor, and Jesus seems to support this breakdown of the law, this division of the law. Uh, Question 94, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? So now that we have a basic understanding of the law and the commandments, let's look at the first one. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? And here's the answer, that I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints and other creatures that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, that I trust Him alone, that I look to Him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, that I love Him, fear Him, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against His will in any way. Now, in a recent sermon on persecution, I talked about the fact that we aren't persecuted as Christians simply because we worship Jesus. We're persecuted because we worship Jesus only. If we worshiped and celebrated the sexual revolution of our culture alongside our worship of Jesus, then the culture wouldn't have as much of a problem with us. If we caved to opposing pressures to add a couple of secular principles and standards to our Christianity, then we wouldn't face so much opposition. Now, the reason I said that, and the reason I bring it up here is because there's a connection there. Uh, The reason that we worship Jesus alone is because we're commanded to worship God alone. And the temptation and tendency for us to try and serve two masters, it's just there in our hearts. But God makes it very clear from the very beginning that he will not share his glory. God calls for complete devotion, not shared devotion. And in fact, anything less than complete devotion is idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Well, that's... That's where question number 95 comes in. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Now, I'm just going to kind of bring these two things together. Question 94, 95, and the answers there. Idolatry was a huge problem for Israel in the Old Testament. If you read your Bible, you'll see it. They were constantly tempted to give their devotion to some pagan deity that promised health or wealth or prosperity or victory in battle or, you know, you name it, right? And, and when they came into the promised land, the, the Israelites were commanded to rid the land of all of the previous gods and idols. And they were to take down the temples. Uh, the, they were to take down the high places uh, where false gods were worshiped. But God's people were completely unsuccessful in that. They, they could not rid their lives of idols. And in many cases, we're, we were unsuccessful in that as well. We might not bow down and worship idols. Uh, we may not pray to some false deity, but we give our devotion to things that take God's place in our hearts. Now, to be honest, to be clear, idolatry still exists in the world in every form, and it is still a temptation for men everywhere. Um, if we can, I can drive right down the road and take you to a pagan temple that that, that is placed in the city limits of Saxe and outside that temple, there are literally idols to Buddha and people go there and they worship and they pray and they bow down to a false God. Um, there are idols all over this country. There are idols all over the world. So that, that tendency that Israel had to want to have their Yahweh and have a little bit of Baal too, that, that tendency is still within us. Um, it's just a problem. It's a problem all over the world. But it's still a problem for us too, and maybe not in the same way that you think. Yes, you might not bow down to a little shrine in your home or your office, but the temptation for us to give our devotion to something other than God, to other than Christ, is, is still a temptation. And personally, I think John, uh, 1 John chapter 2 is a fair summary of the type of idolatry that we most naturally see in, in, in American culture today. Here's what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So when John uses the term "love here, and then he, he kind of pits our love for the world against our love for God, we have to understand that he's talking about something much deeper than just our emotions, our affection. He's talking about, about a type of affection that looks like worship and often motivates worship. Which means John is saying that loving the world here is a form of idolatry. John isn't saying that we should not love the people of the world and nor is he saying that we shouldn't care for the earth itself. He is not commanding us to reject the economic and social structures of society. What he is saying is that we should not love the worldly attitudes and the worldly values that are opposed to God. I mean, John's talking about the things that uh, appeal to our flesh, the things that look good to our eyes, the things that make us proud. John is saying those things get in the way of desiring the things of God, uh, being proud of what God has done, and finding our hope and confidence in God. John is not talking uh, about the, the world in the sense of the people and the structures. He's talking about the world as it affects our heart. John is talking about the world that does not recognize God, the world that does not recognize Jesus, the world that does not um, recognize the Bible, the world where where God does not rule. He's talking about the world that is set against God and God's purposes in Christ, and this world is still contending for our love today. Um, It it would be very easy for us to live our lives uh, only for what this world affords, to to have as much as we can get, uh, to enjoy all of the pleasures, uh, whatever those pleasures may be, whether they be sexual pleasures or visual pleasures or the, the, the foods of the world. It would be very easy for us to live our lives just consumed by the entertainment of the world and the things that this world affords. But God calls us out of that to give him our lives, to serve him with our affections, to serve him with our money, to serve him with our time and our energy, uh, to serve him with the way we eat and the way we drink and whatever we may find ourselves doing. You see, not much has changed since the days of the scriptures. Not much has changed since John's day where he wrote 1 John chapter 2. The thoughts and the attitudes and the morals of our world are still trying to gain our deepest love. And John doesn't say that we should hate the world, but that we should withhold our love from it. So essentially, there's this. There are two things vying for our affection, our total devotion, and our worship, God and something else. In this case, John says it's the world. But only God, only Yahweh, only our Creator, only our Redeemer, only our Savior deserves the type of love from us that looks like worship and that causes us to worship and serve Him. And that's what this whole catechism is all about. And that's what the First Commandment's all about. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through each of these Ten Commandments to learn how they still apply to our lives today. So I hope that you'll join me again next week as we look at Lord's Day 35, and questions 96, 97, and 98. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram uh, at CBC Wiley, and you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cornerstone Wiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.